Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity uh, that we have to have uh, words from you, to be reminded of who you are and thereby how carefully uh, we should listen to you and strangely enough how um, much we should be willing to hang on to you even when it uh, is difficult to do so because of opposition and cost. And as we uh, look at uh, those issues in our, our text for this morning, pray that you would, as we have just seen in the last hour, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what your spirit is saying to us as your church. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, Revelation 2, verses uh, 8 through 11. So let me just read that to you. I'm, I'm reading from the NASB uh, this morning. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So as we opened last week, same this morning, right? So this, you have to remind yourself each time when you're looking at these letters, that on the one hand, you are indeed simply looking at a letter written to a first century local church, Smyrna's like 40 miles or so straight north of Ephesus. And so we were at Ephesus last week. You're looking at a Bible map. You just go straight north up the coast, uh, the, the Mediterranean uh, uh, side sea there dips all the way up to Smyrna, just like it did uh, Ephesus. They're at the end of what's almost like a fjord. It's probably a little wider than that, but if you look on your map, uh, you'll see that it comes up there. So it's a town of some uh, significance, has access uh, to uh, the water. But it is one, again, of seven churches. And so that number seven is also, in the book of Revelation, certainly of some symbolic value. Uh, so it reminds us that 
Um, This letter is not just to a local church in the first century, but to the church broadly in the first century, as well as applicable to the church down through the centuries of, uh, of which we are a part. But the, the letter does remind you, you know, that God pays attention to the details of things like local churches, you know, so that the church in Sioux Falls would no doubt be commended for certain things and heavily criticized uh, for, for other things. You can pretty much count on that having been the case. And, and therefore, all churches uh, right, have, have tendencies, as we've said, they have strengths, they have weaknesses. Uh, this letter, again, addressed uh, to the angel of the church, which may just be an angelic being representing the church, or, as we've said, the word angel could also just mean messenger, and so it could be to the uh, leader, the messenger of the church, but elsewhere in the context it makes it think that it's probably literally somehow an angel, but as I said before, scholars differ pretty widely on that. Um, We'll start out by just noting again the ultimate author of the letter, and that's in verse 8. And to the angel of in Smyrna, the church, write, These things says the first and the last, who became dead, And he lived, there it is, he became dead, and he lived. Like in the last hour, the the letter ultimately comes from a really august, important source. The one who is called the first... And the last. Now that is, without question, a reference back to these kinds of references in Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the one redeeming Israel, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and besides me, there is no God. So you got Trinitarian sort of illusions taking place here, right? Because Yahweh of the Old Testament says, there's no one besides me. And yet we are to fully understand that the person addressing The church in Smyrna is Jesus. You know that for sure, because Yahweh was never dead as Yahweh and then lived. Uh, So this first and the last, you could also say of him that he died and he lived. Well, you can't say that of Yahweh. 
You can only say that of Jesus, who is, at the same time, somehow, identical with Yahweh. So that Jesus is appropriately spoken of as the first and the last. Uh, He's the first and the last. He's announcing his deity in unmistakable terms. Uh, Same thing a couple of chapters later. um, Isaiah 48.12 Listen unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, the one calling upon me. I am he. I am the first. Also, I am the last. Now, interestingly enough, in the, in the Isaiah passage, the Septuagint uh, translates Isaiah 48.12, I am the first. I am forever. Um, when the Hebrew text that we have, at least, fairly just, I'm the last. I'm the one who comes after. And I think at this point, the Septuagint wants to make sure that its readers understand what is being claimed in the text of Isaiah, namely, that this is the everlasting God. He is the first. He goes on forever. Uh, so I'm the first. Go on forever. That's certainly a, the, the, the sense the sense of this little, um, what they call a merism, right? I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm everything in between. I am, I am the ultimate of the ultimate of the ultimate. Um, and that, like in the last hour, that's what's so crucial for Christians at any time to pay attention to. That is, who, who are we really listening to? Whose word do we have? And the point of all of these images that are from that initial vision in verses 9 to 20 is that Jesus is this ultimate being, this ultimate person. He is the God of the Old Testament. So all those images having the Old Testament background are a way of saying Yahweh, 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 creator God of the Old Testament. That's who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. And so the, the, the point of it again is that the people of Smyrna and us, we are reminded who we're really listening to when we listen to God. We'll come back to that in a minute because our, our culture has a really different picture of who we're listening to when we claim to be listening to the word of God and, uh, and, and they're putting a great deal of pressure uh, as they did in the first century in the Roman Empire on anybody who tries to hang on to the word of God in any meaningful sense. 
But of course, here's where the, the, the big paradox of the incarnation comes back into play, right? Uh, because you, he goes on to say, this person who's the first and the last, say, okay, I know who that is. You know, that, that language is taken from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is talking about Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's talking about Elohim. He's, it's God. And now it says, though, and I, and, and I died. Well, God can't die. God can't die. Um, and I lived. So he's talking about Jesus. And so then the whole, you know, down through the history of the church, the whole can of worms gets uh, paused on right here, right? Because what you have to end up saying is, uh, but the, the, the creeds in the church want to say two things about Jesus. Jesus is not a split personality. He's not part divine and part human. He is a unified person with a divine and human nature. Okay, so that we say it like that. And so far, so good. Okay, yeah, very, very nice. Um, But then as soon as you say, he died. Now you got the trouble. Now you got the problem. Because... Jesus says divine person can't die, but he is a divine person. And yet he died. And so then we say things like, well, he died as to his human nature. Which is really about as good as we can do. But when we do that, we need to understand when a critic says, you haven't really solved the problem. They're right. We haven't really solved the problem. Um, and we're in good company because nobody but heretics have ever successfully solved the problem. Uh, so you don't want to be among those who solve the problem. Uh, you want to be among those who say, so, well, how can you say that? And, and now we're back to the, the same old issue, really, where we started, right? Well, we say that because... We have no understanding of the nature of God aside from the one that he has revealed to us. And we have that understanding in the Bible. And so when we talk about the triune God, what do we try to do? We make it our business to try to re-say to the best of our ability what the Bible says. And once to the best of our ability, we have done that. We say, okay, there it is. That's our best. That's our best. Well, we still have questions. I know. So do I. But there it is. There it is. And, and that's where Christians for 2000, well, 1,700 years, you know, since uh, some of these creeds have uh, come out uh, for the Trinity, for the nature of Christ, and the um, three and four hundreds, um, that's, what, that's what we've done. But the point is, that John is making 
is that this is divine Jesus that we're talking about. This isn't the Father, this is the Son. Because this person that he's talking about, who's the first and the last, he died. Well, the Father never died, but the Son did. The Son did. The Spirit never died, but the Son did. So we're talking about the Son. Um, Genuine humanity of Jesus is being alluded to here. The reality of Jesus' suffering and death is alluded to here. Now, don't miss how significant that is under the circumstances. To remember, Jesus suffered and died. Jesus suffered and died. And we are in Christ. We are associated with Jesus. Um, not dismissing this completely, but I'm, well, I'm dismissing this piece of it completely. I was, I was raised in an eschatological tradition, the study of the end times, in which we were repeatedly assured, and some of you hold this position, so I'm not, I'm not trying to poke you in the eye or anything like that, but I am, I am saying that this piece of your position should be flatly rejected and crumbled up and thrown into the, into the wastebasket. This piece of it. I am sure that the Lord will rapture me from the earth before any of the serious shooting starts. We were sort of assured of that. I thought that way as a kid. Um, you know, well, if the, you know, if the Russians ever take over and start, uh, uh, you know, torturing Americans, at least it's good to know I'll already be gone. Um, right? Because that's, that, well, that's, that's the deal. Um, uh, that, 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 that's, that's the deal. That's a, that's a, that's a really, 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 shallow American sort of thinking. Uh, but we're gifted at that uh, as, uh, as shallow Americans. So, um, but you see, it's, it's right on the surface that that is what is, uh, what, what my dad used to like to refer to as hogwash. See, this is, this is, this is, this is hogwash. Uh, because right here, it just says, Jesus died. Jesus died. Jesus was mocked. And, and spit upon and belittled and, and tortured on his way to death. So clearly you're not supposed to think, well, that couldn't happen to any of his followers. No, quite the opposite. Remember, Jesus, your master, this is what happened to him. Now this is relevant at Smyrna because... Uh, as we'll see in a moment, uh, Smyrna is a place where, culturally speaking, it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. Um, And that'll take us to our second point. Note, the ultimate author knows 
about his people. He knows about Smyrna, and he knows what it's like to try to follow him in Smyrna. Uh, Now, they live in a culture um, at Smyrna that's hostile to them even by average Roman Empire standards because Smyrna is a little more than average dedicated to honoring the Roman Empire and honoring the emperor at Rome. Uh, They all have to do that to some degree, but but Smyrna is, they're more more like that, right? So like like when we travel here in the United States, so you're traveling, you're in in airports, um, you know, there's... uh, the, the, the symbol for the airport in Sioux Falls, I think, has SF in it, uh, right? And, uh, and the symbol for the airport in San Francisco has SF in it. Um, they both do. Um, and they're both in the United States. But, but, uh, you under, you're under considerably less cultural pressure as an evangelical Christian, if you are in the Sioux Falls SF, rather than if you are in the San Francisco SF, right? There's a big difference between how those two cities um, vote and how they think and how they uh, how they would view evangelical. Christianity. Not that everybody in Sioux Falls is jumping up and down about evangelical Christianity, because they're certainly they're certainly not. Uh, but they don't think it's the oddest thing they ever heard of, either. Uh, whereas in in San Francisco, they do. Uh, like really, 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 only really, 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 really dumb people. Well, Smyrna is a little more San Francisco like. Right, so like in uh, in uh, when, when when I well my, my uh, I have a son who lives in uh, Seattle. We haven't gone into Seattle proper much. We go and meet him on the edge in, in more recent years since COVID. But many many times gone. You walk from their house to a, a, a restaurant. Now I walk through uh, I, I walk through uh, my neighborhood in, in Sioux Falls. In Sioux Falls, I could not walk far enough. I could not walk far enough on the streets of Sioux Falls to walk by 10 Black Lives Matter uh, stickums in the front yard. Um, in Seattle, you can get to that number in about three blocks. Right, so you just head up to the main street, head down to the restaurant. One, two, three, four, five. Now it's a university district besides everything else, but that's just a very different place, right? Culturally, politically, Smyrna is a little more like that in its first-century version, first-century Roman Empire version. And, and these believers are stuck. Uh, they're stuck um, 
being believers there. And, um, and that's what he refers to as their tribulation. I know your tribulation. I know nobody appreciates your commitments where you live. I know that. I know that. That's what he's telling them. I know all about it. Um, um, and it's, it's, it's costing them. It's costing them. And, and we watch our culture increasingly. We hand out costs related to ideological things now with some regularity, right? Just, I mean, just a few years ago, right here in the very conservative state of, of South Dakota, our governor said, we're going to take a stand on this whole business of bathrooms. There's going to be boys' bathrooms and girls' bathrooms. And then somebody said, well, not if you want the Amazon warehouse to come there, and not if you want any of the schools in your state to be uh, certifiable in the NCAA, and not if, and not if, and not if, and not if. And then what did we say? Well, we didn't mean that. We didn't mean that, not exactly. Not exactly. In other words, all they said was, might, might cost you some poverty. Well, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not having any poverty related to this. We're not having poverty commitments. Well, they are. They're having poverty commitments. Uh, it's costing them. Uh, in Smyrna, probably, there's probably certain jobs they just don't get to have. There are certain associations they don't get to have. It's costing them. It's costing them. You know, that used to look, that used to look so far away when I was just a kid. This looks so far away. It's not far away even in our culture. Not anymore. It's here. It's here. Um, he says, but you're rich. You're rich. So what does it mean to be poor and to be rich at the same, at the same time? 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. You can look up a couple of the others on your own. We won't take the time because we keep running out of time before we get close to being done. So, I'll have to go to the other one because I think I wrote down the wrong one. Um, so we will, we'll just go over and look. I know the other one, the next one is uh, the right one. So let's go over to James. James 2.5. James 
Don't worry, there's one in 2 Corinthians. Um, it's being poor and making many rich. So if you can draw that text, that's uh, it's a two participles there. Being poor, making, making, many, making many rich. Uh, James 2.5. Um, this is the kind of thing that he's talking about. Here, my beloved brothers... Did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and inheritors of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Did not God especially tend to pick out those who are poor? Well, in this case... Uh, they are they are choosing they are choosing poverty and ending up with poverty because of their their commitment uh, to the things of God. So further back in Revelation two nine, and I know your tribulation and the poverty. But you are rich, and I know the blasphemy from those calling themselves Jews, but they are not. Those calling themselves to be Jews, but they are not. But of the synagogue, of Satan. So what in the world is going on here? Um, and this, uh, this is where um, uh, New Testament ways of, of thinking and talking you know, make us as Westerners, as Western Americans, very, very nervous. We 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 want to say whoop john shouldn't be talking like this he should be a little more careful uh than that um so what is he what is he talking about well here's what was going on through a good piece of the 1st century in the roman empire christianity was viewed as a subset of Judaism. And the empire had kind of a deal with Judaism that because they were considered so stubborn and would cause so much trouble and had in the past, even if you slaughter them repeatedly, um, you'll just sort of tolerate some of their religious practices in a way that you wouldn't for anybody else. And so that was sort of the deal that they had. And for a a couple of decades, um, Christians are, are seen as a sect of Judaism, so they get to fly under the same banner. But if, but if, you're, if you're 
in the Jewish community in Smyrna, um, you know, here's, here's how evangelism church planning tended to work, right? So where are you going to find people to tell about Jesus? Well, you'd probably start with people who might possibly be interested in Jesus um, because you're claiming he's Israel's Messiah. Uh, Where might you find people who would be interested in Jesus being Israel's Messiah? Well, the synagogue would be a good place. Uh, And so you go to the synagogue and you start to talk to people about Jesus. And some of those in the synagogue are persuaded. And they start meeting with you. Um, and eventually, of course, now maybe you're, all, you're meeting separately as well. You have your little mission to the synagogue. But now, uh, now you also have pulled people out of the synagogue and who are worshiping Jesus as the exclusive Messiah. So how popular is that down at the synagogue? Not very popular. Not very popular. And so if you have any kind of political connection, what might you be tempted to point out? These guys aren't us. They're not us. Quit treating them as if they're us. We don't see them as us. We see them as having rejected us. And we certainly reject them. Because they say, this guy that you guys crucified, they say, he's our Messiah. He's not. We don't say that. We hate that idea. We hate that idea. So quit treating them like the rest. Go after them. Go after them. Make them pay like anybody else has to pay who doesn't fall in line. And it worked. And it worked. Now, listen again. Listen how he describes it. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy from those being called, calling themselves Jews. But they are not. Like, whoa. What do you mean? They are not. That's probably a mixed group, right, in the synagogue in a place like Smyrna. There's there's the Jewish population that moved to Smyrna. uh, So they're the genuinely ethnic Jewish population that moved to Smyrna. But there's, there's also Gentiles who have become full proselytes of Judaism. So they've taken circumcision, they have absolutely gone all in, and they have joined, uh, they have joined you know, Judaism uh, out, of a, uh, out, of their, out of their out of their background. And so they are part of what they would have certainly called at the synagogue the authentic Jewish community. But what do Christians say about that? Well, Christians, you see, 
are, in the, especially in the first century, they understand. They, they don't, they've never been schooled in postmodernism. They've never been schooled, look, there's your truth, there's my truth, everybody has their own truth, we can all, we can all just, they don't think that way. They don't think that way. How do they think? Well, they think like this. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. So who is a genuine Israelite now? Now just think about this language. You find it all over the place in Paul. Those who are in Christ. In Christ. Think of that little phrase. In Christ. Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. Those who are in Messiah. The real, the real Israelites are those who are in the Messiah. They are the actual people of God now. If you have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, you are no longer a genuine Israelite by that thinking, by Christian thinking. Those are fighting words in the first century as they are now. Um, but notice, they're not, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to read between the lines to come up with that. John just lays it out there. They call themselves Jews, but they are not. And just in case he hasn't gone far enough yet, um, which, I mean, frankly, if I was there, I think you've gone far enough now. Uh, you know, I think, I, I, I think you've gone far enough now. John says, no, 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 I haven't. I haven't. Uh, they're actually the synagogue of Satan. Okay. Uh, you know, now, now I'm pretty sure. Now I'm pretty sure everybody gets what you're saying. Um, no misunderstandings now. Um, why would he say that? Well, what's the essence of what's the essence of the satanic deception? And what's happened to you if you're Jewish, Jesus is Messiah, and you rejected him? You've been deceived. That's all he's saying. Now, that's, that's enough. But that's what he's saying. You're the synagogue of Satan. You're the synagogue of the deceived. They're the synagogue of the deceived. Um, now, a couple of things. Why in the world? Why, 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 why? Does, does John want to be so bombastic? Is he just trying to be difficult? No. No, he is being clear. It's all he wants to be, is clear. You see, who is now tied to the first and the last? Those in Christ. What if you're outside of Christ? Then you're not savingly, in, you're not savingly connected to the first and the last. You're just not. That's what he's saying. 
That's what he's saying. And, um, and, and we are to believe exactly the same thing. Outside of Christ, how much hope is there in the world? There's none. Acts 4.12, there's no name given among men. No name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a little in, in Acts, a real key little word gets used repeatedly, Acts and Luke. Little word day in Greek. You look it up in the lexicon, the divine necessity. Uh, by the divine necessity, which is simply a way of saying, by the ultimate plan of God himself, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So once you have rejected Jesus as Messiah, he's not that. Uh, Wherever he is, he's not that. Um, You've rejected the one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And, And John just clearly sees it that way. And he's teaching those in Smyrna to, uh, to see it that way. And, and, and if you go the other way, you, you fall and pray to the satanic. He doesn't just refer to it as the former Jewish tradition. No, he just calls it the satanic. Uh, uh, he would, John, John, John would, John, if John started to talk about the cultural Marxism of our day, he would start using satanic language. He would just throw it out there. This is what's going on. This is what's behind all this, that, and the other thing. That's what he would do. That is a biblical worldview at, at, at work. As uncomfortable as we may be with it, like, oh, I'll quit doing that. That's what he's doing. That's how he's talking. That's how he's talking. Um, thirdly, verse 10. Note the proper response to the trouble given the identity of the ultimate author. Um, verse 10. Fear not that which you are about to suffer. You know, back to my youth, like... No, 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 no. We get raptured out before the suffering. Now, not, not, not in Smyrna, they don't. Uh, uh, that which you are about to suffer. Behold, he is about to cast, the devil is about to cast, back to the satanic again, the devil is about to cast from you into prison in order that you may be tempted and you shall have tribulation ten days. Say, well, what in the world is with those ten days? Well, almost certainly. Remember, there's more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than anywhere else. And they're especially concentrated in the book of Daniel and in the book of Ezekiel. And here you have a clear reference to Daniel. Uh, say, well, what in the world? Uh, well, let's we'll look, look it up. So uh, Daniel 1.12. Daniel 1.12. Now this may at first strike you as a little obscure, 
but, but it shouldn't because remember, these illusions also include sort of the broader context of what he's alluding to. And as soon as you start referring to the broader context, then Daniel uh, chapter 2 is not at all a stretch um, to uh, what's going on in, in, in Smyrna. So Daniel 2, 12, and then we'll skip the verse. Well, I'll just read through it down through verse 14. Uh, because of this, the king became angry. And Do I got the right? Chapter 1. Chapter 1. I wrote it down right and I looked it up wrong. So here it is. Please put your servants to the test for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in the presence, in, in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, which is pretty amazing. And he put them to the test for ten days. So this is a remarkable, this is a remarkable. Providence, right? Because you know, in our in our uh, Nebuchadnezzar could, you know, would would probably parallel pretty nicely to somebody like uh, Joseph Stalin in the 20th century. So if you're if, if you're in the Babylonian administration and you're a middle uh, you're a middle level official, and and uh, and Joseph Stalin has said X. Um, and, and your official position is, well, yeah, but I might fudge on X a little bit if I feel like it. Um, that would like be a really dangerous thing to do because if Joe hears that you have consciously fudged on X, you're dead. You're dead. Nobody gets to do that. Nobody does that. Nebuchadnezzar's like that. He's like that. So it's quite a providence that this official has Daniel say this to him, and he goes, okay, okay. This could cost him his life. He doesn't get to make decisions like this. The word was, from the top, they eat the king's food. The king's food has all kinds of association to idols. Tough. They're conquered people, they eat the king's food. And Daniel cuts this little deal. And the trial period is ten days. Ten days. Uh, It's not a super long period of time. Um, But... It's really a trial. And, and, it, and it announces a time like, ooh, you're going to, this will be like being in exile with Daniel. This is like being in exile with Daniel, where you are. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a light thing. And then he makes it very plain that he understands it's not a light thing. Uh, by saying, don't fear, 
you're about to suffer, behold, the devil is about to throw from you into prison in order that you may be tested and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. Yep, they might kill you. They might kill you. And if that's what it takes, then die. Right? Um, we don't have time to go into it, but you know, the Polycarp is associated with the church at Smyrna. Now, it's another 60 years, but Polycarp gets burned at the stake directly, like this, just, just this. He won't, he will not, he will not give heed to the emperor. Uh, and, they, and they plead with him. Look, he's an old man. We don't, we don't really want to burn you. So just, like, you don't have to mean it. Cross your fingers. Do whatever you want. And Polycarp says, no, nope, can't do it. Or we're going to burn you. Remember Polycarp's famous surprise? Yeah, I know. But you threatened me with a fire that burns for an hour and then it's done. I'm worried about other forms of fire. That's what he says. Well, if you actually think like that, in other words, if you actually think like a Christian, you are hard to intimidate if that's how you think. And that's how they're being encouraged to think. That's how you think. Um, that's how you think. Questions uh, before we go to the last. Any, anybody have any questions so far? Before we run completely out of time. Which... All right, we'll just jump on to the next, the last verse, which is we've, we had the same verse last week, but we never got to it. So it's, it's very appropriate. And this really ties carefully, closely, to the last hour where we were in, in Mark, note the importance of how we hear Jesus' word. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Now again, without question, without question, this little repeated formula is an echo back into the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, Israel as chastised for being people with eyes to see, but they don't see, and ears to hear, but they don't hear. And that was the story of the people of God in the days of Isaiah. And John is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. If you have ears to hear, Be sure you hear. Don't be somebody that has ears that doesn't hear, has eyes that doesn't see. You be a person with ears who actually hear, listen, apply, obey, submit to God. Submit to God. And not to the alternative.
And what bolsters that thinking? What bolsters that thinking is the last little line of our text. The one conquering may not be harmed from the second death. Like, oh, good grief, the second death. That is just so beneath anybody. The whole uh, threatening with hell. What a shallow, silly, stupid, intellectually bankrupt thing to do. Shallow, 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 silly, 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 dumb, dumb, dumb. Really, that's said forcefully in our culture. You know why? Because the idea is positively frightening. And everyone's conscience warns them. I think you're answerable to somebody. I think you're answerable to somebody. I've mentioned it many times before. For my generation, the thing was, if you watched, uh, I didn't watch it much, but I did. I saw it a number of times. This, even this sketch, you know, if you're 60 years old or so, Saturday Night Live, the church lady. Right? The church lady on Saturday Night Live. Mocks two notions. The notion of Satan and the notion of punishment. How silly, how shallow, how dumb, how laughable, how laughable. For John, he just mentions it like, well, you really do want to escape the second death. Well, what's that? Well, that'd be the lake of fire. Uh, that'd be the lake of fire. So he's got references. We'll, we'll just look at... Um, 21.8, Revelation 21.8, and we'll close off on this. Revelation 21.8. The other one's a little bit more extensive, so I take the, I'll take the second one. To the cowardly, to the unfaithful, to those practicing abominations, murderers, fornicators, those practicing sorcery, idolaters, and then a really sweeping category. And all who are false, their part shall be in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what he says. Which is the second death. Um... That notion is a powerful notion. Just, just think of all the different ways that we skirt around anything to do with that. So what, what, what you know, most, most Americans, this is the thing about Americans. We, we always want it both ways, right? So it's like, well, look, 
There's certainly no hell. What happens is everybody goes to heaven when they die. Yeah. I saw that right on the commentators in the NFL. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you died, your son's in the NFL, what are you doing up in heaven? You're watching football. Uh, that's what you do. They're, Dad's up there watching the game. Dad's up there watching the hockey game. Dad's up there watching the basketball game. Dad's up there, and that's what they do in heaven, is they watch sports on earth, which makes a lot of sense. Of course they do. Well, what else would they be watching? Um, no, so that, 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 that's how it goes. It's, we're, we're materialists. We, we are atheistic materialists who go to heaven when we die. That's what we do. If you, I mean, those of you, if you took, if you took humanities class, we'll close with this. This is, it's almost unbelievable when you, when you come across it. So the, the guy that's supposed to be like the super honest, you know, the, the ultimate and honest atheists, the ultimate and honest, consistent, bold, drop the hockey gloves, atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche. Let's just put down, let's just put down all of all of this nonsense and let's be consistently atheistic. So that's my position, Nietzsche says. You see, oh, so there's no future hope. Well, there's the, re- there's the eternal return. Like, well, what's that? Well, that's kind of where this just gets replayed over and over again forever. Well, how did where'd you come up with that? I mean, all of his thoughts are just a move, random movement of molecules. That's his position. Where'd you come up with that? Well, he doesn't know where he came up with it. I'll tell you where he came up with it. Conscience, the image of God. He just can't. Hard, I mean, he couldn't pull. He couldn't pull it off. He couldn't be the consistent guy. He's famous for being. But we never hear this come at anybody. The second death. When, no, when, when people die, nobody ever says, wow, I wonder if they have the second death coming. Nobody ever. Ever. In John's mind, most people do. I mean, he understands. I mean, this little group that he's talking about that escaped the second death, they're tiny. They're a tiny group. Those are the presuppositions of the book of Revelation. That, that he's, this is what he's talking about. It's a, it's a shocking thing uh, to think as a Christian, as a biblical disciple, but it's our calling. 